0: literally means that you put heat to a liquid, and as the liquid gets hotter and hotter and goes from liquid into a steam, the liquid reduces. Well, that phrase, boil it down, has come to be used as an idiom in our culture to mean to reduce or simplify something to the most basic, Essential, fundamental elements. Boiling something down. Summing something up. Looking at the, the essence of something. The simplest essence of something. Well, in our study of Ephesians, we've learned that this book is really divided into two parts. Chapters 1-3 through three explain, as J. Low Baxter says, our wealth in Christ, what it means to be saved all that we have in Christ, and chapters 4 through 6 focus on our walk with Christ, the practical implications of what Christ has done for us. And we've been walking through chapter 1 and chapter 2, discussing and learning more and more about our wealth in Christ, what it means to To be a Christian. All of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And admittedly, we've been swimming in some pretty deep water. We've been considering together some some weighty theological concepts. So I love this next passage in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, because these three verses boil it all down. It kind of brings us to the the essence, the core of what it means to be a Christian. I want to show you that if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse through this book. Now this book was a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Asia Minor in the first century. And as we've studied our way through this, we've made it to chapter 2, verse 8. When you found your place, I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. By the way, well, I was blessed by the music this morning. How about you? I haven't heard a couple whoos. No, that was good. Good stuff, man. Aren't you you glad that Jesus is our living hope? Wow. Wow. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his. Workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we, we praise you. We declare and recognize that our hope is found only in you. And we come to this time of studying your word with great expectancy that you will speak to us. and God, as we study your word, I pray that you would move in our hearts, move in our lives, move in this congregation by the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us understanding. And Lord, grant us inclination, grant us wherewithal That we would desire to respond to what you show us. Lord, I'm I'm asking you to change our lives today. By your grace and, and always and only for your glory. And we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. These Three verses boil Christianity down to its essence. And in this summary statement, we're going to be reminded of the foundational elements of Christianity. Now just a quick reminder, here in chapter 2, Paul describes our salvation. He begins in verses 1 through 3 with the bad news. Who we are before we meet Christ, the enemies of our soul, our our enslavement to the flesh, the fact that the devil is luring us, uh, tempting us to go astray. The world is bombarding us with its ungodly messages. And because of our spiritual condition, Paul writes, We are dead in our trespasses and sins, which means we are unable to do anything about our spiritual condition. We're separated from God and we can't fix it. We're unable to fix it. But starting in verse 4, Paul uses two words to shift the, the, the mood of the passage. He uses the phrase, but God. We are spiritually dead, separated from God, unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything about our spiritual condition, but God has intervened. He begins to talk about what God did to give us spiritual life, to save us from our sin and from our desperate spiritual situation. As we get to verse 8 again, Paul sums it up, boils it down. This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Ephesians. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. I love this passage of Scripture because it teaches us three basic truths about salvation. Three basic truths about salvation. First of all, we learn this. Salvation is a gift from God, not a reward. Salvation is a gift from God, not a reward. When I say salvation, I mean forgiveness of our sins, a relationship with God, and the hope and promise of heaven when we die. Eternal life in heaven. That's what I mean by salvation. And salvation, this forgiveness, this this hope and promise of heaven, is a gift from God, not a reward. Or let me say it like this. Salvation is a gift that God offers you. It's a gift that God offers you. Look what it says there in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is, this is not of your own doing. It is the Doron, the, the gift of God. Very clear. If you are a Christian, if you are saved, it is because you have received this gift from the hand of God. And the phrase, it is the gift of God, helps us to understand what it's all about because a gift, by definition, is not something you work for or earn, it's something you receive. So I remember uh, a few years ago, I bought my two oldest boys. A new video game console. They had an older one, had it for years, and I surprised them on Christmas morning with a brand new uh, Xbox One, and, and they were surprised, they were excited, and they opened the package and they were ready to hook it up. At that moment, when they, when they opened the video game console, I didn't say, "Now that's going to be $300. Let's, let's see this for both of you. So give me each of you, give me 150, and then you can go play the game. That would not have been a very good Christmas, right? They understood it was a gift. I understood I was giving a gift. They they simply received that gift and enjoyed the benefits of that gift. A gift, by definition, is not something you work for or earn. It's it's something you receive. And and this salvation that we have in Christ is a gift from God. And, And I want you to understand, this gift of salvation is undeserved. We don't deserve it. ...by any stretch of the imagination. Look what he says there in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. The word grace is a beautiful word. And it simply means unmerited favor... ...or undeserved blessing. It's what God gives to us that we do not deserve. And Paul is very clear. This gift of God... This salvation is by grace. God has offered it to you even though you don't deserve it. And he uses some other phrases just to really drive home this point. Look what it says there in verse 8. This is not your own doing. This salvation is not something you have achieved. It's a gift of grace. And then he says it again in verse 9. He says, not a result of works. And then there's a really interesting phrase behind that when he says, so that no one may boast. The word works there, when he says our salvation is not a result of works, refers to any human condition or accomplishment by which one thinks to gain status or privilege before God. So if someone does something, they think, Because I've done this thing, God is going to accept me or God is going to save me or God is going to give me heaven when I die because of what I have done. That is a work. And and Paul is clear, our salvation is not a result of works. If it were, if we could earn our way to heaven, we would be full of pride and boasting, wouldn't we? I read this quote from R. Kent Hughes. He says, if salvation came by works, eternity would spawn a fraternity of rung-dropping, chest-thumping boasters, an endless line of celestial Pharisees. Because if we earned our way to heaven, we would think, boy, I've done great, hadn't I? I made it to heaven. I did the right stuff. I checked the right boxes. I achieved the right things. And and I've, I've made it to heaven on my own and we would be like that Pharisee who is praying and he looks at a tax collector that was despised in society and seen by the religious leaders as, as evil and ungodly and unclean and that Pharisee prays and he says I'm so grateful God I'm not like that guy over there and if we could earn our salvation we would be just like that Pharisee we might couch it in Certain religious language, but in our heart we think, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad I'm better than him or her. I've earned my way to heaven. But this verse is clear. Our salvation is not a result of our works, lest anyone should boast. Our salvation is a free gift offered to us by God. That means that there is no boasting in heaven. In heaven it all be praise to King Jesus because we'll understand in heaven that we can't save ourselves. Our only hope was what Christ did. For by grace you have been saved. People who believe that they can earn their salvation have a wrong view of God. We talked about this this morning in my Bible study class. People who think they can earn their salvation basically think, well, if I do some good stuff and my good outweighs my bad, then certainly God will kind of wink at my sin and say, hey, come on into heaven. But that is a completely wrong concept of who God is. The Bible says that God is holy, a God of absolute moral perfection, total unique moral majesty. First John 1 John 1.5 says that, that he is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Habakkuk says that God is so pure, he cannot even look upon evil. So when we as humans sin against that holy God, we are separated from God. And it doesn't matter how many good things that you do, if your sin has not been paid for and you stand before that holy God one day, you will be separated from Him for all of eternity. See, no matter how many good works you have in your hand, you've still sinned against a holy God. Because God is holy, your sin demands punishment. And if you stand before God with with unforgiven sin, you'll be separated from Him forever. But here's the game we like to play when it comes to thinking our works are good enough. We like to say, okay, I understand God's perfect. I'm not. But, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Uh, In fact, if you compare me to old Joe over there, Sorry if there's a Joe in the congregation. But if, you, if you compare me, Mr. Joe Edwards here this morning. If you, if you compare me to Joe over there, I'm a lot better than Joe. So certainly God will accept me. I heard this illustration years ago that really helped me when it came to comparing myself to others. Let's just imagine that I was standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. And it's it's me and a high school track star and an Olympic track star. And we say, we're going to jump across this mile-wide chasm. And I go first. I jump out five feet, (laughs) plummet to my death, right? The next guy, the high school track star, great athlete, runs, launches, jumps, 20 feet, plummets to his death. He did a lot better than I did, but he's a long way from the other side. Then the Olympic athlete steps up, runs, jumps, world record, as far as anyone's ever jumped before, and plummets to his death. Because the chasm between us and a holy God is one that we cannot cross in our own strength and with our own works. No matter how good you think you are, no matter how good you think you measure up to others, your good works will not get you into heaven. You are separated from God, and those sins that separate you must be forgiven so you can come into God's presence. And so this verse is very, very clear. For by grace you have been saved. Unmerited favor. It's the gift, the gift of God, not a result of works. But there's a second truth about salvation here. Not only is salvation a gift, not a reward for right living, salvation is received by faith. You say, okay, the Lord offers me through his son Jesus a free gift of salvation. How do I receive it? How does that work? Well, Paul makes it very clear. Again, he's boiling it down here. In verse 8 he says, for by grace you have been saved Through faith. Faith is the mechanism by which you accept this gift of eternal life. Through faith. Now, in other world religions, every religion other than biblical Christianity, you spell salvation. A-C-H-I-E-V-E. Achieve. Do the right things. Keep the rules. And maybe, just maybe, God will wink at your sin and, And usher you into heaven. Every other world religion is spelled achieve. That's how you are saved. In biblical Christianity, you spell salvation. B-E-L-I-E-V-E. Believe. You simply trust in the work of another. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Now, let's just talk about faith for a moment. What is faith? How do you define that? How do you understand what faith is? Let me give you three quick things. First of all, faith is assent to truth. In other words, there's some things you need to believe that are true. You need to believe the gospel. You say, Pastor Roy, what's the gospel? The word gospel means good news. And Paul defines it very clearly over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, This is the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. And so those verses indicate that something happened in human history. Jesus left the splendor and glory of heaven. He took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So he was born of Mary as the God-man, fully God, fully man. And as the God-man, Jesus lived a perfect, matchless life. He never sinned. He was the spotless Lamb of God. In obedience to His Father, Jesus went to the cross. And the Bible says on the cross, He became sin for us. He took all of your sin, all of my sin on Himself, and He died on the cross for our sins. In other words, He took the punishment that we deserve. That's called substitutionary atonement. Jesus became our substitute on the cross. He died in our place. He paid the penalty that we deserve to pay because we're the ones that have committed the sin. And after he died on the cross, he was buried. And early on the third day, he rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. Those things really happened about 2,000 years ago in human history. Jesus left heaven, stepped into this world to come and die for our sins and defeat death When he was resurrected, that really happened. And for you and I to be saved, our faith is assent to those historical realities. We believe it really happened. Over in Romans chapter 10, it says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, there's a belief, an assent to these realities that Jesus really did die for us that Jesus really did rise from the grave. So faith is assent to truth. Secondly, faith is reliance. It's not just knowing some historical realities. It means that you understand you can't save yourself, so you then rely on another. You it's the word trust. You trust another. It means that we rely on on someone believed to be reliable. It means we rely upon Jesus who did everything necessary. We sang it this morning. Jesus paid some. Jesus paid it what? All. So we're trusting in what Christ has done on our behalf. It it is reliance. And then faith is volitional. It it means it, it... It it meets you at the level of your will. It, It moves you to make a decision. It moves you to rely on someone else. It moves you to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's my only hope. And I want him in my life. I want to follow him. That's what the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There was a moment in my my life when I was nine years of age that I was not saved. I was separated from God. But there was a moment when I placed my faith in Christ where I believed that Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. I believed that I needed him. I was trusting what he did for me. And I, I made a decision. And I called on his name and invited him into my heart. And at that moment, I passed from death into life. Faith is assent to truth. Faith is reliance. Faith is volitional. Some theologians speak of faith as uh, notitia or knowing something about Jesus. And a census, believing the truth of that content. And fiducia, which means to entrust ourselves into his hands. Same, Same idea here. Faith has those different aspects. Faith is trusting what Jesus did on the cross as the only way you can be forgiven and given eternal life. During the 1900s, there was a world-famous acrobat. His given name was Jean-Francois Gravelet. I think I said that right. Maybe not. But his stage name was Blondin. Everybody called him Blondin. And... He was born in France in the 1800s, and he was known for his skill walking the tightrope. He had all these different tightrope types of feats. And and one day, he was demonstrating his skill in crossing a tightrope that spanned Niagara Falls. If you ever been to Niagara Falls, you know what that must have looked like to see a man walking across a tightrope across those mighty, mighty falls. The tightrope was 1,100 feet long, 160 feet above the water. On one occasion, Blondin took a stove out on the tightrope and cooked an omelet above the falls. On another occasion, he pushed a wheelbarrow across while blindfolded. On still another... He stood on his head in the middle of the wire, a very skilled acrobat. One day, after walking across the tightrope over Niagara Falls, he turned to the large crowd. He said to one man watching, Do you believe I could cross these falls with you? You've seen me do it. Do you believe I could get you across? And the man said, I've seen you do it. I believe you can do it. And so Blondin got a wheelbarrow and brings it to the tightrope and says, Get in! The man began to back away. I would have too. You see, that man had a level of faith. He had seen Blondin perform his acts, but he wasn't really ready to entrust himself to Blonde. He wasn't going to get in the wheelbarrow. Saving faith is, I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the grave, and I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow. I'm going to entrust my life to him. I'm putting my life in. I can't save myself, so I'm trusting another. I'm placing my life in his hands. That is saving Faith. But let me give you a third truth this morning about salvation. Because we're, we're boiling it down. And we got to deal with verse 10. I almost spent an entire sermon on verse 10, but I want to cover verse 10 this morning. Salvation is a gift from God, not a reward. It's a gift you receive. You receive this gift by faith. And, and, and number three, salvation changes your life. Salvation Changes your life. Look what he says there in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for there it is good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the first thing I want you to see about this verse is that word workmanship. It's the Greek word poema, it's where we get the, the English word poem from. But in the first century poema could refer to any work of art. It could refer to a poem, it could refer to a painting, it could refer to a piece of music, any work of art. This word poem, poema was used. And it came to be it came to mean in the first century something like a masterpiece. So, notice what he says here. For we Those who know Christ, those who have accepted the free gift of God by faith, we are the workmanship of God. We are the masterpiece of God. That's what this verse is saying. It is a remarkable verse. Every redeemed person is a masterpiece of God. And we know he's talking about redeemed people because look what it says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. You become a a masterpiece of God when you step into Jesus, when you place your faith in Jesus. In union with Christ is when you become a masterpiece of God. So if you are a Christian, if you've been redeemed, if you've been born again, if you've been saved, the Bible calls you a spiritual masterpiece. How about that? That's pretty incredible, right? A masterpiece. Every redeemed person is a masterpiece of God. That means that God has done done something significant for you, and he's doing something significant in you. You are a masterpiece. I don't feel real significant, Pastor Wade. This verse says that you are. That something special is happening in your life because of Jesus, because of God's work. Every redeemed person is a masterpiece of God, and every redeemed person has a purpose. Don't miss this. It says, we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, when somebody preaches about grace, salvation being a free gift of God, we're not saved by our works. Works don't save us or make us right with God. It's a free gift. Many people begin to ask the question, what about aren't good works important? I mean, shouldn't we be concerned about doing good works? Well, this verse tells us that we should, but we need to make sure that our good works, the focus on good works, is on the right side of our salvation. And he says here that God has made us a masterpiece for the purpose of doing good works. In other words... If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the free gift of salvation by faith, then that salvation will produce in you good works. Good works will flow from your life. But I want to be very, very clear. Good works are not performed to secure salvation. They are the fruit of salvation. You see the difference there? We don't work to be saved We work because we are saved. Or say it like this, good works don't produce salvation. Salvation produces good works. So when you think about works, think about it on the right side of your salvation. As a a redeemed believer in Christ, you've accepted the free gift of grace. Now, now God has something for you to do. He has expectations for I want you to live. He has a plan and purpose for your life. And the inevitable result of true salvation is good works. The inevitable result of, of true salvation is fruit. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but there's no fruit, there are no good works being produced in their Christian life, then they're probably not truly converted. Because the inevitable Result of true salvation is good works. And let me read to you what Jesus said about this in John 15.8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The fruit is proof that you are truly saved. That God has forgiven you and is at work in your life. And here's the exciting thing, and oh, I don't want you to miss this. God has prepared specific good works for you to do. Or or let me say it like this. God has a, a particular plan and purpose for your life. Look what he says back in verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now look at this next phrase. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This means that God has a pre-prepared plan for your life. And he wants you to walk in them. Walking in the book of Ephesians means your manner of life. He wants your manner of life to be living out the good works he's prepared for you to do. And think about this verse in comparison with verse 2 of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians uh, 2 verse 2 talks about walking in our trespasses and sins. But now because of Christ we can walk in good works which God has eternally planned for us to do. That gives us purpose. Don't buy into the lie that God doesn't have a particular plan for your life. When I was in college, I learned to share my faith using the four spiritual laws written by Bill Bright. And the first law was this, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I believe that to the core of my being. God loves each and and every one of you and he has a particular, good, specific plan for you to walk in as a Christian. So the question becomes... Well, how do I figure out what those good works are? How how do I figure out what God's prepared for me to walk in? And and there's not some easy answer that I I can give you, but but here's what I can tell you. If you will walk with Jesus every day, if you allow the Holy Spirit of God to fill up your life, if you'll saturate yourself with Scripture, He will lead you to where He wants you. He will lead you into those good works. Amen? Amen? But don't expect God to show you the specifics if you're not walking with Him. Walk with Him. He'll lead you to where you need to be. He'll lead you into those good works He has prepared for you. But as a Christian, you have a purpose. God has something for you to do. And let me just hasten to say this. If your heart is still beating and your lungs are still breathing, God has something for you to do, right? Every one of us, every one of us, every one of us. See our young people out here? God has a purpose for our young people, amen? A plan, a particular plan for their life as they follow Christ. He'll lead them into that. But we we need to speak to our young people and say, life is not meaningless. Life has purpose. And you'll find your purpose in Christ. And so... These three verses really boil down what what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be saved, what salvation is about. Salvation is a, a gift of God, not something we work for or earn as a reward. Salvation is received, not by doing something, not by achievement, but by belief, by placing our trust in Christ. And Salvation changes your life. Because God begins to produce in you and through you good works that he has prepared for you to walk in. So think about the big picture. Let's think about all of chapter 2 to this point. Verses verses 1 through uh, 10. Let me give you the summary statement. Think about how good it is to be saved. You ready? When we are saved, we go from sinners lost and without hope, living for nothing... To masterpieces touched by the hand of God. Producing good works. Living with purpose. Jesus makes a difference. He makes a difference. And this passage, in summary form, helps to understand that difference. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.